It will be in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, with whom no man has seen or can can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter in the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Father, we again just do thank you so much for um, your life and the salvation that you've given us in Jesus. And we thank you, God, for the work that you are accomplishing in us to bring us into greater and greater conformity to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would use, Lord, again, your word this morning in our hearts, that it would be effective and powerful, God, for your purposes, that you would truly be honored and glorified in us. In Christ's name, amen. May we see you. Well, as you noted, I started out the scripture reading this morning with um, part of what we looked at last week, but I wanted to come back to it a little bit, just briefly, this first um, paragraph beginning in verse 11, where Paul has been talking about um, contentment, and that if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be um, content, and then saying now to Timothy, flee from the peripheral things that are not going to bring you to Christ and pursue, rather, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And I just wanted to just come back to that and camp out on it a little bit more about um, fleeing and pursuing. It's um, something that is, it's a, it's never going to come to an end. And it's so important for us to understand, as I said last week, though Paul is saying that we are to be content in our circumstances, we are not to become complacent in our walks with Christ. And there is a a huge difference. And typically, we are discontent in our circumstances and complacent about our walks with the Lord. But he says, content in circumstances, not content, not complacent with where we are spiritually. 
And so this pursuit is to be a lifelong ambition. It is a holy hunger for Christ and for the things of God. Different writers um, um, have a lot to say about this, but when it comes to the definitions of these virtues, um, there's not really any debate here. Righteousness is involves every thought, every action, every attitude, that it would be in harmony with God himself and what God calls right. It's about a personal integrity where our lives and our values and, and our choices are consistent with what is true of God. Godliness is much the same, but it's, it's Christ-like or God-like character and conduct in the believer. Faith is trust in God and Love, obviously, is selfless devotion to others, and perseverance is, is that faithful continuance through adverse and discouraging circumstances, and gentleness is being tender and kind toward others. None of us have arrived when it comes to these things, and if we think that we have, we are mistaken. And so in every one of these graces, these six things that are mentioned, Paul is saying, be in pursuit of them all the time, throughout our lives, even to our last breath, saying, God, this is what I want to be true in my life. Nobody can think on really more than one thing at a time as far as to truly concentrate on it. I remember when I was in college, I had a piece of advice one time from a guy that was practically a professional student, and, um, and he was saying, the mind gets weary after just an hour of studying one topic and studying it in depth, really just being immersed in it. So every hour, take a five-minute break and then change topics the next hour and you will get more out of your study time. But it was just a basic lesson about the human capacity and human nature. It is not a, we are not able to focus on two things equally at the same time much less six things. And then if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians, what is it, nine things that are there. So how in the world can this happen? Well, again, I believe that Paul really would have us come back to the person of Christ because every one of these five things, six things here, or the nine fruit of the Spirit, is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to see that there's no way for these things to be pursued individually apart from a pursuit of him. And I think this is what Paul was getting to in Philippians where he says both for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in chapter 3 he says I'm still trying to lay hold of what I was laid hold of for. That life is the pursuit of Christ. It is not the pursuit of wanting to make life easier. It is not the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit of Christ in all circumstances. And you just think how many tragic choices people have made with their lives because their pursuit was not Christ. Their pursuit was to be free of something that was causing them pain and distress in their lives. That can be relationally, it can be financially, it can be health. But when our pursuit becomes something other than Jesus, we are on the wrong path. And Paul is strongly encouraging his young protege here, Timothy, pursue 
only Christ. And in doing so, you will recognize that you have much more to gain when it comes to righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, these things being worked out in your life. In 2, Timothy, 2 Peter, Paul said, Peter said much the same thing where he says, Add to your faith moral excellence, and to your moral excellence knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and perseverance, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. But he starts out by saying that we have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness in Christ Jesus by his divine power. So even there where Peter says, add all these things, he first orients the believer to all that they already possess in Christ. But he's saying you, are, you have been made complete. But as I said to our students at graduation at his hill just a few nights ago, you are complete in Christ but you are only half-baked. Meaning God isn't finished with any of us. And there's not to be this settled complacency and our life begins to pursue something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is something that God has to really expose in our lives of what we're living for. And with that comes the question of what we are living from. I appreciate that when my mom um, realized that, that her cancer was at a stage where it was very easily going to be a, a, deci- a decision had to be made. L- make life about conquering cancer or continue to have life be Christ. She battled the cancer. She did a lot of things to try and, and get rid of the cancer. But through it all, she says, my pursuit is not to be cancer-free. But my pursuit is to continue in relationship with the Lord and to know Him and not to put Him second to anything, including my health. That Jesus is first above everything. And I appreciate how that affected her attitude and her disposition, her relationships with, with all of us, family, friends, church, everyone, I believe it was so much different than what it would have been if her number one pursuit had been to be cancer-free rather than to continue in Christ, pursuing him first and foremost. This is an active thing. It is to be true every moment of our lives. And it is something that will, um, is, will never end the older that we get. So it's what we are living for. But in the next paragraph where he's talking to rich people, it's what are you living from? And every time I think about those prepositions, from and for, my heart and mind always go back to Romans 11, 36, where Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. That if we are living for Christ... He is our pursuit. Even that, if it is not done in living from Christ, living for Christ is still a matter of my own flesh and my own strength. And scripture says that whatever is not of faith is sin. So you can even in your own flesh pursue Christ. You ever think about that? And it's called religion. You're not really pursuing the person. 
Because if you were, you would recognize your own dependency upon that person. You would live from him in dependency upon him, even as you yearn for him. But if we're not living from him, then even our pursuit, as godly as it may be, is nothing more than what we are doing in our own humanity, in our own flesh, and it is merely religious. But he's speaking of a relationship here. So after speaking about fleeing these things that are not true of Christ and pursuing Christ in all that is true of him, he says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. And again, this is something that continues throughout life. Fighting this fight of faith. What is that fight of faith? Not all fighting is bad. And that was something that, that it used to be in school we, we learned. Um, when I was a kid, you didn't always get expelled for getting into a fight. You might got, got spanking at school, but you weren't going to be expelled for the rest of your life. And it was because some, the adults recognized there were some things that were worth fighting over. And, and little boys especially need to learn that you need to stick up for people who are being abused. And you step in and maybe you take a licking, but you give a licking if that's what it takes to stop evil from being done. There is a good fight. And Paul says here, fight the good fight, the fight of faith. I believe that means the fight that would, that, that the tendency to drift us into unbelief. Many Christians are not really living in a state of belief. We come to faith, we, put, we place our faith in Christ, we are saved. Then as life goes on, if we're just honest, many times we aren't really living by faith. We're not trusting Jesus but we've drifted away from him and there's not that dynamic of Jesus, I need you and my trust is in you. Fight against that drift. It is a dangerous drift. Fight against the departure from the orthodox historical faith that has been delivered once and for all for us. And it is a constant drift, a constant departure that's there. It's never going to end. Again, this is a fight that we need to realize that we are in till the day that we die. A fight that would, pull, that, that would pull us away from the historical truth of God's word and the fight that would pull us away from a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. A departure from him and a personal relationship. A departure into independence instead of dependence. Paul says, fight against these things. And I believe he would say and encourage one another to do the same. Flee, pursue, fight, and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We have been given life in Christ. Anything else that we are fighting for, fleeing from, in pursuit of is unworthy and is less than what we have been given in Christ. And then again, as he so often has admonished Timothy, keep the charge of the Lord in purity. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So Paul to Timothy, you know what to live for. You know what to fight against. And now as a young man, this is going to be hard to do. 
But you need to go to those rich people in your church. Many of them are going to be older than you. And having no financial basis on which to say it, you're going to become their instructors. And say to them, what are you living from? Are you living from your wealth? Or are you living from Christ? And one of the ways that we can discern that is, how do you use that wealth that God has given you? Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Isn't it ironic? Timothy would not have been a wealthy man. And here is a poor man giving advice to the rich. That doesn't usually go over well. And Paul's aware of that. But he's saying to this poor man, Timothy, life is not about money. And even when you have much, your life is not in your possessions. And rich, being rich now or being poor now doesn't mean that's any indication of how it's going to be in the future. So the number of things here that this poor man, Timothy, is to say to the rich. And the first is, if you are rich, and again, very few people would call themselves that, except for maybe if you happen to be running for president right now. But we are, in this country, among the super rich in this world. And it is the temptation when we have more than what we need. And that, by God's definition, is wealthy. When you have more than you need, more than your daily bread, by most people's standards in this world today, that makes you wealthy. No concern about where lunch is coming in a little while. No concern about supper. You're not even concerned about your food for tomorrow. You're wealthy. It, with that wealth comes a temptation toward conceit. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Why would you be conceited over your money? Because there is the temptation to think that somehow it's because I made it happen. I deserve it. I did it. I'm smarter. I'm deserving. And we forget that there is nothing that we have that didn't come from God. Every good thing comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the one who gives wealth. And there is no reason whatsoever for a person to begin to think that he is better or smarter or anything else because of his money. Some people are born into money. Some people get rich through their life in the decisions that they've made. But even in that, whether born into it or decisions that have been made, it is because of the grace of God. Purely the grace of God. Some people, it comes to them easily. Others, it's been through much hard work and labor. But however it has come, it is the gift of God. And we cannot boast as though it is due to self in what God has given. So don't be conceited about it. 
And then he says, and don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Another temptation to think that as long as I've got this money in the bank or I have these investments, that my life is secure. That is a temptation for everybody. Even the poor think, if I just had more, then my life would be secure. And Paul is saying, that is a deception. That our only hope and our only security is in God. Tom was pointing that out today um, in one of the prophets, minor prophets that we're studying in the adult Sunday school class. And this is why... Because our hope and our security and our certainty is only in the Lord. This is why we can let it go. And we don't have to hoard it. And we don't have to worry if something happens that would take it away from us. Our hope is not in the money. But it is in God. I don't have a lot of experience with this. um, But I, I know that my concern... Um, in life is not only for my and my family's personal finances, but also for the finances of His Hill, where I work. And it's just amazing to see how God has supplied and protected through the years. But it's also amazing to see how just about the time when you have so, enough in the money, enough money in the bank to go, we're doing okay now. What God does to bring big expenses down the line that you couldn't have predicted. And right now at His Hill, we, we had um, all a septic tank that's not working any longer, septic field. And so um, it's a little thing about the, about the length of our gym. So maybe 70, 80 feet long and maybe three pipes, lateral pipes. And the septic engineer looks at it and says, this was never the size it should have been. Never built as it should have been. Never placed where it was supposed to be placed. Everything about this is wrong. And after 35 years of all the grease from the kitchen flowing into it, it doesn't work anymore. And so they say, well, you have to have a new one. Oh, great. Um, how big is it going to have to be? Well, you're going to have to have 32 lateral lines instead of three. And they're going to have to each be 100 feet long. Wow. And the septic engineer says, and you have to put it down in in the meadow by the river, and we're going the river floods. So we're going to have to put out $65,000 for a septic field in a meadow that is under flood stage. And right now, the river was flooding last night. And if we'd been putting it down there, it would have all been washed away. And so we finally got permission to tunnel underneath the county road and put it on some property across the road that his hill owns. It's a big expense. Virtually all of our vehicles need to be replaced. Um, A lot of vehicles. And it just goes on and on. And the point is, God keeps us in that place where our hope is him. And our trust is in him. It was Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, said, the day that these two things happen will be the spiritual ruin of this school. Number one, 
we get accreditation. And number two, we have an endowment. He says when those two things happen, accreditation, because then we will no longer be able to hire people simply because of their relationship with Christ, but it will have to be because of what degree they have. And secondly, an endowment, because then we won't be in a position where we have to trust God, we'll be just trusting the interest off the endowment. And I don't know of any schools in their pursuit of excellence that are not pursuing accreditation and endowments. And it does hurt them spiritually. Every school, there are no exceptions. Why would it be different with our personal lives? If I'm pursuing, as it were, the accreditation that the world gives, what the world says is significant, when God says there is nothing more significant than the pursuit of Jesus Christ. I can have all the accolades of the world and have nothing because I have not spent my life in pursuit of Jesus. Or I can have so much money in the bank that I cannot possibly spend it in my lifetime. And yet I've ruined my life. And I've ruined the life of all my dependents because they're no longer dependent upon the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying here, tell the rich to give it all away. doesn't begin to say that. But he is saying they need to be careful not to put their hope in their money. Not to be conceited about it and not to fix their hope on it. But to fix their hope, the end of verse 17, on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Our hope is in God. It truly is. What are we living for? What are we living from? And then he continues with further instructions to them. Verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Okay, wealthy people, use your money to do good. You should be rich and have a reputation for it in good works, not just a reputation for having a lot of money. You should be generous and ready to share. It is your money, Paul is saying, but it is from God. God gave it. And it is yours to enjoy. So don't just hoard it. It's okay for the rich to enjoy what God has given. And if there's somebody that has more to enjoy than what you have then you should practice the grace of rejoicing with those who rejoice. And say, I thank you, God, that that person is able to do with their money what I'll never be able to do. I'm rejoicing with them. It is harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. And honestly, those that are rich and sensitive to the Lord and to the people in their lives... I know many times 
they aren't free to enjoy what God has given because the believers around them are stealing their joy. That's not right. We should be able to rejoice with them that they can take vacations that the rest of us maybe couldn't take, that they can drive a car that we could only dream about. It is all... It, it, it is, you, we have to put it in perspective. I remember one time hearing in seminary many years ago that one of the, one of the um, chapel speakers said at that time, Bill Gates was in the news because he had just built um, a house that was worth $20 million or something. This was 35 years ago. $20 million house. But then he says, let's put this in perspective. This man is worth so many billions that his $20 million house would be like you or I paying $40 for a house. Rejoice with him. He's not necessarily being extravagant when you consider how much that he has. And we don't know how much he's giving. We shouldn't know. It's not our business. The rich... Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. And you should have the freedom to enjoy what God's given. But you should use it as well, not just on yourself, but to do good and to be ready to share with those who are in need. No one can tell you to give it all away or even how much to give. And no one should make you feel guilty for having it. But what you do with it is important for your faith and, in some respect, for your eternal future. And so that's why it says in verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. How we use our money will have eternal significance. It doesn't just have to have significance for now, and it can. But it actually, and so, so basically what Paul's getting at is this is the, the best investment that you can make with your money is not to put it in the bank, not to buy land, not to buy gold and silver. All of those things are uncertain. There is no certain place to invest your money. So the best thing you can do with your money that would truly invest in eternity is to spend it in ways that benefit people and to do so in a faith-obedient relationship with the Lord. And as you do that, you trust God to be directed by God to give it away to help others as God would direct. You are storing up a foundation for the future. Now, this is not a message on principles of how to give away your money, but I would say this, again, from, from my limited perspective, because not having as much money as some do to give away. So I don't have to think about it much as, as much as others would. And I don't say that facetiously. It is a great burden to have great wealth. There is a sense when I don't envy it in the least. Because those people always wonder, why does that guy want to take me out for lunch? Why does he want to spend time with me? Why is he mentioning his needs? Is it so that I might do something for him? 
I wouldn't want to live with that burden. But one of the things I think that all of us need to keep in mind, because there are so many people soliciting us for money. We get the phone calls all the time. All of us do. Whether it's, you know, wounded veterans or, you know, or the Firefighters Association, whatever it is, there's constantly people that are asking us for our money. I think we would handle what God has entrusted to us better if we would keep in mind God's perspective that God is usually doing what most people don't see. In other words, those ministries and charities that are the best known are often the places where God is not working. Those are the places, sadly enough, and that is not true of all of them, but most of the ministries that we hear about the most are the ones where there is the least financial integrity. You hardly ever hear about Gideons, do you? Because they're not out there advertising themselves. But every dollar that you give toward Bibles, every penny of it goes toward a Bible. When you give to the Gideons, there is not one penny that goes toward overhead expenses. That's a ministry with integrity. And there are those out there like that. But most of the ones that I hear about, particularly coming out of other countries like India, that you hear about on the radio, because we have a guy in Torchbearers that's in India, and he knows some of those people personally. And I've asked him, are they worth investing in? And he says, all I can tell you is I wouldn't put my money there. Because he knows there are major integrity issues. And it's not just ministries coming out of India, here in the States as well. Typically, where God is at work is, what pe- is where people are not noticing. And so that's why we shouldn't just be moved by the impulse of the moment. Take time to pray and not just be moved by the sensationalism of an appeal. And ask God to open your eyes to what He wants you to give toward. Over and over again, I've seen the same principle at work when it comes to just hiring people. And I don't know how many people I've hired over the last 30 years at His Hill. It's been a few. But I know I've found this to be true over the years, that often the person that God wants on staff is someone near that I haven't noticed. Because they're not out there promoting themselves. They're not out there advertising themselves. And the guy who writes me the letter and says, God has called me to his hill, and I'm just waiting for you to know it. And I don't think I'll be able to continue on in life if I can't be at his hill. I can just put that one, you know, in the trash can. Because they're telling me that life for them is to be on staff in his hill. I want somebody whose life is Christ, and they don't need to be at his hill. And then, and the, but see, then I have to have God's discernment and God's eyes to be awakened to people around me, typically is the way it is, that God wants to supply that need. And I think it's the same principle when it comes to giving. Typically, there are huge opportunities, worthy opportunities around us if we would just have the eyes to see them. And some of the most significant things that God is doing in the world today 
are through ministries that are not well known. We should understand that. Because God is not going to necessarily raise them up because they may become, become conceited and turn away from the Lord. And so we have to have God's eyes and God's mind to see what is truly significant around us and not just give to the best-known ministries. So this is, this is a burden for the rich. And it can only be, we can only give well and give generously and give for eternity when we're being directed by the Spirit of God. And God wants to direct this. Remember the parable over in Luke 16? It's an amazing parable. We call it the parable of the unrighteous steward. And there's this guy who um, is about to get fired because he hasn't done his job well. And there's a bunch of people that owe his boss. And when he realizes he's going to lose his job, he calls in all those people that owe money to his boss and says, how much do you owe? And one guy says, I owe, you know, a hundred talents or whatever it is. And he goes, okay, get your bill and write down 50. Oh, man, really? Yeah, I'm, write down 50. You now owe, owe only 50. And he went through every one of his boss's creditors and said, how much do you owe? And reduced every one of them, typically by half. Why did he do that? Because he's about to lose his job. And he wants some friends that he can bum off of and mute off of for the rest of his life. And so these people are going to go, man, I'm indebted to you. And, and so he can go into their houses and live because he's got no place to live. What are we supposed to learn from that? I mean, that's why the parables are hard. And Jesus says, I think what Jesus is getting at, the, the truth here is, use your money to prepare for your future. And I don't mean your future here on, li- on this world, but I mean your future with God in glory. And an unrighteous man will deal with money in a way to prepare for his future. You're not unrighteous. You're righteous. Use your money to prepare for your eternal future. Anything else, you're just living like a pagan. If all you're doing with your money is preparing for your own personal life now, there's no difference between you and a pagan. Use it for eternity, Paul is saying. Store up a good foundation for the future. So the lessons, be humble about what God has given and what you have. Trust God and not your wealth. Enjoy what God gives and use it for eternity. And now his final brief words to Timothy. Oh, Timothy. You ever think about when people use your name when you're talking to them? It's usually either they're really mad at you, right? Or they're deeply moved. It's usually a very significant conversation, a very significant moment when someone uses your name in a conversation. And now Paul is saying, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. I don't think I've ever been on guard duty. I was never in the military. 
but I imagine it to be very boring. You know, all the movies I've seen. I saw The Changing of the Garden one time in England. Way overrated. <laughs> Total waste of an afternoon, in my estimation. It is not glorious to be on guard duty. Would you rather be the guard standing outside um, the gold mine or the guy who gets to mine the gold and put it in his pockets and walk home? Nobody really wants guard duty. There's no glory in just being a guard. But it's important even though it seems to be mundane and boring. When it comes to handling God's word, either as a teacher or as a student, there is a tendency again in every one of us to be bored with the plain teaching of God's word, with the historical truth that has been handed down to us. And every teacher and every student wants the new, the novel, the exciting. And Paul says, it's not your business, Timothy, to come up with new stuff, novel stuff, exciting stuff. Your business is to guard what has been given. Don't move away from it. One of the ways that we know the Bible is the inspired authoritative, inerrant word of God is that this book doesn't have to be updated to be relevant. It is as relevant today, as powerful, life-changing, and convicting as when it was first written 2,000 centuries ago. 2,000 years ago, not centuries. That's pretty amazing. I can't improve on it. I don't need to look for anything new, anything novel. I just need to guard what has been entrusted to me. There are so many teachers today, folks, that are wanting to add to Scripture and to move us beyond what God has plainly said in His Word. Whether it's systematic theologies or whether it's new experiences. Paul says, be a guard of what God has entrusted Our duty is not to explore for new and novel ideas, but to guard and not depart from what we've been given. And in that, it means to avoid worldly and empty chatter. It would seem, basically, he's talking about just any kind... It's not just talking about just general conversations, but specifically theological conversations that just ultimately doesn't bring us back to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and his word. There's so much theological stuff today that goes on in our churches that is just not central to Christ and his word. It's based upon speculation. It doesn't profit. It doesn't lead us back to faith in Christ. And he says, avoid it. In fact, one writer And I was looking at it, has even stronger words for it than that. He says, he must turn away from them in disgust. It should be avoided like pestilence. 
One guards the truth by turning away from all insipid ranting. Think about it. I have never been better served than by maintaining a heart and disposition that if this teaching is not leading me to Christ, then at least I can say it is not for me now. Because I don't believe God wants me to spend my time contemplating, meditating on, interacting with others, debating and arguing with others on something that isn't encouraging my personal relationship with Jesus. Avoid it. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And again, if this so-called knowledge is something that only a select few are able to enter into, already red flags should go up. How much do I have to study this to get this? I remember one guy I read, and he says that he, he wrote a book on, on a particular subject, and all of his detractors wrote and said, you just haven't studied this enough. And yet it is, it is represented as the pure gospel. And he goes, I have spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours studying this topic. And you're telling me I don't know it well enough yet? How is that the pure gospel? We don't need to be seduced into what is falsely called knowledge. If it isn't leading us back to a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ, no matter how intellectual it may seem, it isn't the truth. Oppose it and don't get sucked into it, which some have professed and gone astray from the faith. This is one of those letters, and it's pretty much true of each of Paul's letters, but especially here in 1 Timothy, where Paul just can't say enough about a personal faith in Christ. He speaks of maintaining it, not departing from it, growing in faith, living in faith. It is huge in the New Testament. If this teaching, if this emphasis is not bringing us to the person of Jesus Christ. It is wrong. I believe, and it's not so much that it's not biblical. It's just wrong. It can be biblical, but if it doesn't bring me to Christ, it's wrong. In Torchbearers, the ministry that His Hill is a part of, Major Thomas was always so crystal clear The message of Christ indwelling us, indwelling the believer, is not an emphasis. And if it becomes an emphasis, then it's the message rather than the person. And so when this is not an emphasis, our focus is on the person of Jesus Christ and not a particular truth about Christ. It's still true. Christ indwells the believer. But if that becomes the main thing, then your whole goal as a ministry is to proclaim a message rather than proclaiming a person. And that is wrong. It is an error. It is a deception that you would proclaim a truth rather than the one who is the truth. And you have departed from the faith if that is the case. How's my faith? Am I growing in faith? What am I pursuing? 
What am I loving? What am I living for? In Paul's last statement, grace be with you. And the you, we don't see this in our English, is plural. So Paul meant, and Timothy knew it when he saw that you. Paul wrote this letter with Timothy in mind, but he meant for it to be read to the church. And we're still reading it today because it was God's intention. And as the people of God, we need the grace of God or we will stray from the faith. Paul's one concern here for his young protege, it wasn't that he would stray from the word of God because remember chapter one started. There are those among you who are teaching the scriptures in a way that isn't true. Paul's concern wasn't so much that he was going to stray from the word, but that even in teaching the word, he would stray from the person of Jesus Christ. That he would stray from the faith. We need God's grace. And he richly supplies it to all of us in Christ Jesus. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your great grace toward us. And that we have this incredible opportunity to live life now with eternity in view. I pray that we would, Lord, be those who are fighting the good fight of faith, pursuing all that is true of Christ and pursuing Christ himself, fleeing from all that is unworthy of him, and living both for you, Lord, and from you. You are adequate for these things. And fathers, we live this life. I pray that we would each day, each moment, not be seduced into thinking that we need to preserve our lives or to live with the ambition to make life easier, whatever that would be, to run from those things that trouble us and have, those, and have the pursuit of a trouble-less life be our goal. But I do pray, God, that Christ would increasingly be the one thing that we want to lay hold of and that we would from our hearts be able to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name, amen.